licensing deals and getting the music rights you need. So licensing is a long-standing topic and long-standing point of contention uh, in the music industry and, and digital music in particular. Uh, we've got a super qualified panel here to talk about it. I'm going to give them all a chance to very quickly introduce themselves, and we'll start here with Adrian and work our way down. Sure. Thanks a lot. Uh, I'm Adrian Perry. Uh, I'm an attorney based in New York at Covington and Burling. I do tech and uh, content transactions, so anything from music licensing to data collaboration to just plain old tech and software licensing. Um, I also was a touring musician for a long time, so I did my time in the van, and I know what that's about, uh, which is not a whole lot. Um, and I also worked at a major label in A&R for a few years. Hi, I'm Jim Mahoney. I'm the general manager of Merlin, running the U.S. office of a global member-based, not-for-profit digital licensing agent, if you know what that is. <laughs> um, we represent uh, independent labels and distributors. Uh, so that they can work directly with digital music uh, streaming companies, um, ensuring that they are properly valued in the marketplace. And we offer an efficiency to the services who want to license independent rights. Uh, we have members in 52 countries across the globe. And, uh, so we try and help some of the create some efficiency. Hi, I'm Stephen White. I'm the CEO of Dubset Media Holdings. We are a platform for the clearance and legal distribution of mixed and remixed content, uh, working with labels, publishers, and content creators to make sure that content that's being mixed and remixed gets legally cleared and appropriately distributed with all of the underlying rights holders getting appropriately paid. Uh, I'm Michael McCarty, uh, Chief Membership and Business Development Officer of SOCAN. SOCAN is Canada's performing rights organization similar to ASCAP and BMI. Um, we have about 150,000 members and my primary job is recruiting, retaining and repatriating our members and um, also uh, uh, running a strategy for the digital innovation on the member facing side and I'm also involved in the overall uh, innovation strategy at SOCAN. And I'm Lauren Apolito. I'm the Senior Vice President at Rumblefish. And Rumblefish provides data management, licensing, and royalty services to the industry. And we're part of a larger organization, which consists of the Harry Fox Agency, or HFA, which issues mechanical licenses, as well as CSAC, which issues performance licenses. And our entity was purchased by the Blackstone Group about a year ago. And so we have a lot of support for helping all the, uh, the music creators and also all the music distributors uh, properly license and distribute royalties. All right. So let's, let's just jump right in off the deep end. And one of the things that I want to ask the panel is, what is the most difficult thing that you've had to license? There's all sorts of horror stories out there. Uh, what are yours? <laughs> and I know, Stephen, you have tons, so why don't I mean, we I'm start I'm happy to start. I mean, I, I've got two that have been particularly sticky. Um, the one I'm doing right now, which, you know, at Dubset, what we're licensing is what's technically called derivative rights, uh, where something has been modified from its original form these rights, because they are a little bit of an afterthought for the industry traditionally, They've, they typically haven't been adequately covered in the licenses that the artists have done with their labels or with their songwriters have done with their publishers. And so it's, very ch it's a very challenging area to license 
uh, primarily because the label and publisher partners we work with don't always know what rights they actually have to this content um, and don't know what rights, therefore, they can actually license to us. And so there's a lot of invention happening in terms of trying to figure out how uh, we take a behavior that exists today, you see it every day on YouTube and SoundCloud, um, and figure out how to create a licensing structure around it that works for the entire industry and, and also works you know, ultimately for the artists. Uh, the second one is lyrics, which you know, Daryl knows very well about. In my previous life, I ran Grace Note, and we, we went down the same path Daryl did. And I'll, I'll leave the, the lyrics uh, horror stories for somebody else, but it's another area where invention... You know, still emotionally scarred by that? Still emotion I still wake up with night terrors from that one. But just, I think any time you're trying to license something that hasn't been broadly licensed before and you're having to blaze new ground, that's particularly hard. Anyone else want to jump in with a horror story? No? All right. I mean, so, Daryl, uh, no, I mean, I mean, like I said it in the green room, um, I've always said there's two things I wouldn't do for a million dollars a year, and that's manage artists or, or license thing, music from people. I always license music to people, so there you go. Yeah, I mean, I think just there are a lot of horror stories. I think I maybe was just stunned by the question and just blacked out momentarily. But uh, I, I guess the one thing I'll throw out there is just anytime you're dealing with the combination of multi-territory licensing with a new type of use case, it's always going to be challenging. And I, you know, I recently had to go down that path with someone that wanted to do a live stream around the world, and it's something that hadn't been done before and trying to figure out, well, who do we need to talk to? And, you know, that sounds like a simple question, but, you know, the answer is a lot of people. Um, so I would just say that, you know, I've run into that a few times, and, you know, it just, I think you're kind of hearing that from some of the other answers. It's just anytime you've got a new use case hasn't been done before, that's not just an easy, like, okay, yeah, we can just proceed, it's going to be tough. So how many, how many people here are startups that need licensing for what they're doing or trying to do? So, we've got a few. so where do they start? If somebody wants to do something novel and different and they're new to the industry, they don't know anybody, how do they get started to actually get the licensing deals done? I said in the green room, I think that um, from a Merlin's perspective or a licensor, um, that you know, it matters who's bringing you into the market, which is your attorneys, any of the advisors or consultants you hire, um, it'd be a wonderful thing if you could come up with a fantastic idea and the industry would just beat feet um, to you know line up at your door to give us uh, give you our music, but it's just not the way it happens. Um, and so I think it's important to make sure that you've created a structure of, of the right advisors, people who've previously cleared these types of licenses. I also think it's important to join the community of, of people that you're trying to enter by coming to things like San Francisco Music Tech or joining trade associations and things like that so that you can be in the community. I mean, one of the other things that we talked about earlier is just the timing of licensing and, and, and making sure that uh, you're thinking very carefully about how you license and when you license. Um, you know, there's a lot of companies that get out in front. They license too early uh, before their businesses are, are ready for licenses. There's the, uh, the converse of that, which is folks that go out and launch their businesses without licenses. And that's obviously a challenge as well. So, you know, part of getting good advisors, getting a good attorney who have experience in the business, 
is helping you align around uh, what your licensing strategy is going to be and what the right timing is around that. So that's kind of a, a constant question for a lot of people, not just the people that need the licensing, but also uh, people who are looking around the industry is, which is better? Should a service launch without licensing and ask for forgiveness later so that they can get to market faster, faster and maybe have some leverage uh, to negotiate? Or should they get all the licenses ahead of time, and which can potentially take years and millions and millions and millions of dollars and risk that they may never launch. What's, what's the right strategy? Yeah, well, I feel the right strategy is to get your licenses first, and that's why services like ours are here to assist. So once you get your good consultant, your good attorney who's going to help you identify the type of rights that you need, companies like mine can help you reach out to additional rights holders um, through a solicitation to have them opt into your particular licensing arrangement. And then instead of your startup organizations having to staff up with royalty and data experts, again, you can leave that to a company such as ours where we can help you match up all your data so you'll know what is licensed in terms of your compositions as well as your sound recordings. And we can facilitate all the payments to both the, the publishers and the labels. So that is one way to get to market faster. Um, and it's, it's a proven method that we have um, in terms of helping companies launch quickly and efficiently, but yet doing it right. I think I could moralize um, and say, yeah, certainly you should license first. But um, as Daryl points out, sometimes getting to a place where you have licensed everyone that you're going to need to clear on both sides, uh, the, the composition and the performance, um, can take a long time. And as Daryl said, it could, you know, you could go out of business before you've even had a chance to launch. So rather than moralize about what you should do, um, I want to make sure that those, it's a real fact that folks will launch a service without license. Um, and if you think for a second that by doing that, you're skirting the issue and, and you know, you're going to just have leverage, in fact, what you're doing is courting a lot of problems. And it's not just the obvious one of litigation, right? So big rights holders then can come along and sue you out of existence or, or, uh, or big settlements. More often than not, what the real thing is is that you've now created operational issues because you'll start to build your fan base and a business on data and content that you may have come to through haphazard means, i.e. not a traditional or, or professional ingestion path. Then you get licensed, right? Because you do eventually need the license if you ever want to make real money from what you've created. Then you get the license and you have a whole bunch of partners who are going to insist that you take their data feeds, their content feed, and if that means that you have to throw out everything that you've built to date, right, on the content that you came by way of buying or, you know, ripping or whatever, uh, it's going to be very painful. And I've seen a lot of companies, you know, eventually get licensed and go out of business, not because they didn't have a good model and not because the licenses strangled them out of business, but because they weren't ready to make the switch on the ingestion and professional reporting side of things. I think having a, a staged approach too, just building on what we were just talking about is important. You know, don't bite off more than you can chew. You know, start with a manageable subset of rights. Try and build it the right way from an operation standpoint, rather than try and license the world from day one and not pay any attention to the back end. You have to try and have a staged approach, I think, that you can scale. And that's usually a, you know, a pretty good way to solve some of the problems of kind of staying in the game long enough, proving some credibility, 
and then you know, while also avoiding some of the major litigation risks and operational risks that we were just talking about. So, Adrian, if you want to really scare the audience, if somebody wanted to launch a new service in a different model that was non-standard, using sound recordings and operating globally, how, how many deals and how much time do you think that that would take? <laughs> give, to give people an idea of the scale of the, uh, of the challenge. It would take 100 years and $12 billion. Um, <laughs> No, look, I mean, I think some folks will tell you it'll take between nine months and a year to pull together all of the licenses. You could be looking at, you know, I mean, in terms of the license fees, like what you're paying out, I mean, there's really almost no way to, to quantify it, not because it's necessarily a scary number. It's just it completely depends on what the... What the revenue stream is? No, no, it's more. It's more of a of a time and and quantity of deals rather than a cost thing. This is a hypothetical service that we don't know what their revenue model is. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, I would say it's probably going to take you about a year, and you know, depending on if you're having to go to a number of different publishers and labels rather than relying on you know compulsory licenses in a lot of in certain instances. I mean, you know. 10, 20 transactions, maybe. I mean, it's just, it's really tough to say in the hypothetical, but I mean, you're just, you're looking at a lot of different deals and it just is the, the, the Groups reality. like Merlin here obviously help, right? They've yeah. got yeah. hundreds of thousands of, you know, independent labels that they represent and you can, you can do deals with an entity like that that then they opt in their members in ways that are very helpful. But I mean, just to give you a sense, we've got 38,000 labels and publishers licensed on our platform, and we're a fraction of the way to where we need to be. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it does it it does take time, and it does you do have to be mindful that the rights uh, uh, the rights are fragmented and they're distributed amongst many many different rights holders across the globe. It's going to take some time. Yeah, not touching on the publishing side at all, but just from the master right side, Merlin, who on a global basis has like a 14% market share, which is, means we're the biggest basket of sound recording rights outside of the three majors. Um, and you can, if you have something special and our members push your service towards us, license Merlin. But without a Merlin license, you're talking about probably 350 companies in 40-something countries that... Um, license themselves, they can't be obtained through a license with one of the majors or one of the big aggregators. Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of embedded in this is the idea of trying to curate the catalog that you're licensing, right? Um, so that, that'll that help cut down on the number of deals that you make, um, but that, that limits the catalog that's offered in your service, which can be a problem. Yep. So as an industry and as rights holders and licensors, what can we do to make this process easier? There's a lot of theories out there that can be everything from technological uh, things to make it easier to the complete opposite end of saying, let's uh, abolish some of the, the, the right structure and make things all operate on a compulsory license so that everything can be used. Where do you guys stand? Well, first of all, I think um, that the industry has a responsibility to make it easier, uh, just a self-preservation responsibility, if nothing else, because there's a lot of discussion in the, in the world right now, in, and especially in legislative circles, that people who try to obtain uh, music licenses finding it, finding it difficult, and they're, they're getting uh, 
a response from legislators. And so there's a bit of a threat in the air of the legislators doing something about it, whatever that is, everything from, as you said, compulsory license to uh, whatever. Um, and we obviously don't want, want that to happen. So it's really incumbent on us to, to, to make it easier. And I think that um, uh, it really kind of one of the, one of the tent poles of that is information uh, on 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 the who owns the rights. And there's a lot of there's a lot of work out there right now. A lot of different en en entities are trying to put together co comprehensive and authoritative databases of just who owns what. Uh, we're a long way from having it right, but um, those are really there's a lot of uh, action in that area right now. And also, um, you know, uh, industry associations. Uh, Stephen has a story about um, how he leveraged the uh, NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association, to uh, jumpstart uh, uh, Dubset. And uh, I think those are areas where uh, the uh, industry associations can can be even more sent, more more help. And of course, Merlin is the uh, same thing. Right? But Mike, I want you to say your point that I uh, debated with you in the room, but. When should a label release a record uh, commercially? <laughs> so one of the problems with the metadata, the availability of metadata as to who owns what, is that really um, we're all drinking from a polluted lake. The metadata in that lake is either conflicting, missing, et cetera. And the reason why the lake is polluted is because the incoming streams are polluted. Every time a, a song gets written, um, it, people are supposed to uh, register it with the societies around the world. You know, register with your publisher, and, and uh, then the, then you have the recording data. And it's, it, there's a lot of metadata that has to come into the system, and it comes in very inconsistently, uh, often in conflict. Even things like spelling uh, won't, won't match up. Uh, and uh, and at the end of the day, uh, the worst driver of all this is the inability of of uh, songwriters to uh, agree on the song splits by the time a record comes out. So I have a firm belief that. The way to stop that and fix that is I think the, the labels system has to um, impose discipline and they have to come up with a hard and fast unbreakable rule, which is that no record will be released until all that's together. And of course, there'd be a lot of turbulence from that, but I witnessed, uh, and I ran EMI Publishing Canada for many years, and we had a couple of artists on Roadrunner Records when they were independent, and they had a hard and fast rule. They would not release a record without all that stuff being together and caused a lot of screaming and whining and, and crying, and then well, when everybody realized they were serious, it all snapped to attention and, and they made it happen. So, of course, it's a simpler environment than a hip-hop environment, uh, but uh, I think that that could work. Yeah, and I think a lot of his education, too, making sure that songwriters understand they need to get their works registered, and then also just making it easy for people who want to use the music to understand what it is, which is really making that connection between the composition and the sound recording. So there's a lot of databases out there where they're trying to make that connection. So those links really facilitate licensing because some startup entities speak more in the language of sound recordings where others speak more in the language of compositions really depending on what your business model is. So I think a way that we in the industry can facilitate is to have those good databases and to have the information linked so no matter what language you're speaking, we can, we can help you decipher it. Well, what about the artist that is just recording in their basement and then distributing it wherever and they have no idea that a publishing right even exists let alone how to register it or figure out splits or collect on it or that how how do we improve the data flow from those types of people or can we are we just well, I, mean, I think there, there are things technologies that are evolving things like blockchain and smart contracts that that make some of that easier uh, and there are companies out there like splice that are doing a good job with some of that stuff um, but I, I do think that you know part of it is education making sure that folks understand 
what the rights types are that they have the, the rights to avail themselves of and, and what the tools are that are available to them. You talked about a tool earlier that I don't know if you want to mention. but Yeah, um, I, well, I, more broadly, I'd say it's a workflow tools. I think this is a development that's actually happening as we speak. And um, SOCAN was set ourselves up to be able to leverage it for our members by building a suite of APIs to, uh, as access to our back office. But um, I think that one of the developments that's going to be happening is that in your workflow tools, Pro Tools, Logic, whatever, the tools you use to make the music, will be embedded the process of harvesting the metadata. And, and it'll encourage you, if not force you, to put in all the metadata, in a, in a, and uh, including you know titles, players, uh, producers, writers. And uh, there's a uh, DDEX, which is the world uh, standard, uh, metadata standard association for, um, I guess, music and song media, song and sound recordings. Uh, have a, an, uh, a standard now called RIN, Recording Information Notation, I believe, and they're, that they're pushing, which is, uh, and that'll likely be embedded in a lot of these tools in the future, too. So there'll be a way of harvesting it as you're working. I think that's, that's probably one of the ultimate uh, answers to this. If I could throw one in, I, um, it occurs to me that there's a lot of, um, like, kind of open source or direct to artist um, distributors that are out there, including some on the, like, you know, DistroKid or CD Baby. And I think anybody um, who's running one of those companies, an open to artists um, distribution platform, I'd encourage them to either write up a piece and point to blockchain, um, write up a piece in the portal, wherever it is that they have their artists. I don't know how some of these companies work, but I imagine there's some sort of a dashboard where you enter the title and the artist and perhaps writer information or whatever. And I would just encourage them to make sure that that they're kind of making that a mandatory part of what the artist uploads, um, while also maybe ex explaining it. Because I'm thinking, it occurs to me that if somebody is a recording artist who doesn't understand the split rights and mechanicals and things like that, they might not also know how to find their way to blockchain. So then would you have, for example, the, the CD babies or the other distributors then become the Roadrunner-style gatekeeper saying we're not going to distribute to any of these platforms unless we have yeah. all of the proper information. Well, I think I don't, I, that'd be tough, right? But I think I would encourage them as a good actor uh, to put that up there. I think that I think Michael would say, yeah, they shouldn't. But, but I would think then that would open a market opportunity for somebody who would be a bad actor and let folks through without putting that information. Yeah, I mean, the distributors do a bunch of this already. I mean, if you look at what you know is required to get your work up on uh, Spotify or Apple, there's a pretty extensive set of metadata, and they've made tremendous strides in terms of um, normalizing the format of, of that content. And that's great for their purposes, and it helps them for things like rights resolution within their own platforms. Um, but it doesn't do much for the rest of us, you know, further uh, upstream or downstream. Um, so I think, you know, part of it is looking at how those systems work. When you go to a distro kid, there's a certain amount of information you've got to have available to be able to get your content into that system. Same with CD Baby. Um, you know, making sure you understand what that is and being prepared to give that information is what is really incumbent upon the artist to, to make sure they kind of get their house in order to make sure that they're able to receive the royalties that are available to them. Yeah, I mean, so much of it is, is just the cultural element of just musicians and getting them to understand this. I mean, I'm just thinking of even the Sound Exchange website has like a simple primer on music licensing. Like, even if you had a, a page like that on like DistroKid's site or something like that, 
um, or at least the information's available uh, and folks know what they're getting into if they don't pay attention to settling the splits before they submit uh, a sound recording of who wrote it, um, things like that. Um, because ultimately it comes down to convincing musicians this is important and getting them to actually do this. Because I think the, the stream analogy is a good one. I mean, you have to have you know, good data in to kind of make this whole thing work better. There's, a, a, there's also a bit of a trend out there towards bundled licensing. So but, uh, with different, the different uh, sub-rights of a copyright being bundled together to, uh, to form a package, um, mechanical and, and, and performance, for instance, um, uh, SOCAN has a number of initiatives underway uh, in our marketplace to, to work on that. We also are working with the ReSound, which is the Canadian equivalent of Sound Exchange, and um, on a bundled license for um, our general licensees, bars, restaurants, etc. There's a number of things like that going on around the world and a number of discussions going on because there's a recognition that, that to the licensee it seems uh, absolutely ludicrous that they're dealing with multiple parties to get different sub-rights from the copyright or, the, or, or most, more often the composition copyright than the master. And, it does, it may, and of course, it doesn't make any sense, really. Uh, and um, that's, those are the kind of things that are targets for uh, legislators as well. And Lauren, you have a similar catalog as well with Rumblefish, correct, of pre-cleared stuff that you can... Yeah, we Make do. it be much easier? Yes, yeah. So we do have a, a, a catalog from independent artists, which we can license for a variety of uses. So that could be used as a sandbox for many of the startups as well. So a company could start off with that type of content, and then if their model takes off and they want to enter into deals with larger publishers or labels, we can also facilitate that as well. So one of the, one of the risks that always comes up in talk about licensing, uh, particularly when we're in the U.S., is statutory damages, and obviously the ability for people to uh, sue for large amounts of money, which we've seen happen with uh, companies like Spotify and others where uh, there is infringement, and it seems like there can be more money in litigation than licensing often for some of these players. And when you, when you dig deep into it, sometimes it looks like it's an intentional setup for that, that type of thing. Is that something, and that's it's really unique only to the U.S. In the rest of the world, those statutory damages don't exist. Is that something that uh, creates a chilling effect on licensing or encourages people to not license in order to potentially access this larger pot of litigation money? And is that something that should be changed, or is it just working fine? Yeah, we didn't talk about this one in the green room. I just kind of thought. I, mean, I think Adrian's probably best to answer this one. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, look, I don't think the statutory damages thing is going away anytime soon. I mean, I don't know that it's there to set up sort of screwing over bad actors or anything. I mean, it just is what it is. Um, I think that what we were talking about having like the that pre-cleared set, you know, that sandbox. Um, so that companies kind of get up to speed is a really good way to kind of get started uh, and having that staged approach I kind of mentioned earlier. Um, but, um, you know, it just, it, it's tough. It's, a lot of it's based on relationships. How your relationships are with the, between particular music user and a particular licensor, who the representatives are, are they sort of known quantities in this space? I mean, my personal belief, or at least hope, is that folks would rather make a deal than get into a lawsuit, but it just depends on how you've approached, you know, if you're a music user, it depends on how you've approached things and, and what you're trying to do, and, and you know, have you tried to be a good faith actor, or, or are you trying to, you know, skirt things? I mean, it, 
it's really, I think, case by case. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I agree with that one hundred percent. The relationship piece is hugely important in a world where we've talked about. There's imperfect data. You know, there's going to be mistakes made. Uh, it's an it's an industry that's kind of rife with this fractional ownership with you know data that's not perfect. That that goes back to that first statement of get some advisors and some folks that are working with you that are you know, have those good relationships in the business? Because ultimately, it's really about that point. Are you a good actor that's trying to do the right thing right. or not? And if you are, you'll typically get a little bit of leeway on things. So Merlin just distributed a, a deal notice where we just closed um, infringement, a commercial infringement settlement with a service, and it, it went directly to that, right? So this service launched, licensed the majors, settled with the majors or whatever, and the advisors they had said, had told them that was pretty much what they were going to need to worry about. And so now they've had to pay. But then, interestingly, because this just came out, I happen to be talking to a, a member of Merlin today um, about litigation, and somebody was opining that, that that could be a business strategy. And uh, the member, who's a pretty experienced owner of an independent label, was like, litigation typically isn't a good path to revenue. It's a good path to losing money. Um, so I don't think it would be set up as a strategy. That's reassuring to hear. Uh, also on the sort of unique to the U.S. or more unique to the U.S. side is uh, the joint authorship doctrine, uh, which is something that has come up in the course of Lyric Find a lot. For, for anyone who doesn't know, there's a joint authorship doctrine basically says that uh, in the case of joint ownership, any one of the owners can license the entire work on behalf of all the other owners. So particularly in publishing where you can have 15 different companies that all own a piece of a song, if one of them uh, grants you 100% licensing, uh, then you are covered for that. It's generally not done a lot in practice because people don't like stepping on each other's uh, toes and ability to negotiate their own deals. But is that something that lubricates the market more and helps and should be used more? Or should it be something that also disappears. I think this is the third rail. I mean, uh, <laughs> I uh, look, I think there are a lot of folks out there that think 100% licensing is a bad idea. And, and not, I mean, there are so many, I mean, look, the content creating side of me thinks it's bad. You know, obviously I'm supposed to be down the middle on something like this. Um, but uh, there, there are a lot of market forces that would be disrupted to, if you move to a 100% licensing scheme, you could drive down deal values. I mean, yeah, th there's a copyright principle that, you know, this joint ownership thing that, that you explained, but it just hasn't been the practice in the industry. And I don't know. My personal opinion is it's a bad idea or it's a dangerous one, but there's obviously, you know, a lot of different opinions on this, so I'll stop there. Well, it's rights expropriation. It expropriates the right of uh, each party who created a work to, or their, or their representatives to negotiate, you know, the use of the work and everything. Not just economic, but there's, you know, there's a moral right mm -hmm. as, uh, aspect as well. And um, you know, so I, I think it's bad. Um, don't, the one thing needs to be pointed out, though, that they, you, you can only issue a non-exclusive license, right? So. Right. And just because I like being a shit disturber. Uh, I'll take the other side for a second. As, as a startup doing it, and particularly when we see a lot of the ownership issues and rights management issues and data issues 
coming from the publishing side because of fractional ownership and because of, uh, of even unknown owners or splits that haven't been, been determined, does that not make it much easier for a startup to then enter the market and have a clear view of what they can and can't use and know that they have 100% coverage for it without having to track down every single one of the, the owners, which may be impossible to do? I think it does, sure. It does make it easier. But I think there are more tools at your fingertips as a startup today to obtain licenses and work with administrators who have done so much work and put so much effort into cleaning up their underlying databases and data structures that going to folks like the NMPA and doing these types of opt-ins, working with groups like SOCAN and MediaNet or you know, CSAC and Rumblefish and Harry Fox to be able to have someone administer these rights on your behalf and get as much of them under license as possible is the right path to take. I mean, I agree with some of the moral issues around it. Sure, it makes it easier. It's an easier path. But the easier path isn't always the right path. Sure. And then you get into the place also of, um, I think, what Michael touched on, the moral right, uh, and how do you unpick it? Because I've never met a songwriter or a publisher who didn't say it all starts with the song, right? Mm-hmm. But I've never met a record label or performer who didn't say, yeah, but we invest in all the marketing to make that song. So you'd have to get into a place first where one of those two sides is going to cede the right. 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 (laughs) There's the accounting aspect, too. I mean, if you're a joint owner and you're licensing on behalf of another owner, then that puts the onus on you to then account to the other owner. And how are you doing that? That could drive up internal costs. But is that an area where... uh, a Harry Fox or a Sokan can step in and say, okay, you have a 100% license from this one, uh, one owner, and we will administer the rest of the payments on sure. their behalf. Sure. I mean, because sure. they know you who could, the rest of them are. You could, there are definitely, you know, you could look at tech solutions to make that burden easier, but it still doesn't solve the problem of the sort of moral obligation of, or moral right, right, that folks want to be able to control their creative work and be able to get their what they perceive as fair market value for that. So I completely understand the, 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 the licensee perspective on this, and I do agree that it's way too hard. You know, I've worked on the user side, too, trying to help people get licenses, and it is too difficult, but I think it's you have to think down the path of what it means to you know have a 100% licensing scheme and all the different sort of the cultural elements again, the moral elements, and just the just the operations aspect of it, and what you're putting on the licensor that has to do that and account to everyone else, and having you know inter uh, intercompany deals where they have to figure out. I mean, those admin deals just uh, you know a normal admin deal are very complicated and how the parties work together. So it introduces a lot of complexity for sure. And and under the way that the law is is structured. If one party licenses on behalf of everyone, that one party is responsible for accounting and paying to all the other parties. So that, that's another reason why in practice it pretty much very, very rarely ever happens. is because none of those small publishers or others are set up to handle that process. There are some publishers that have issued 100% licenses for certain types of uses, and yes, they do have to account to their co-publishers, and therefore they would have to probably engage a company like ours in order to do that, because they may not have all of the payee information, the tax papers and all that, to pay the additional publishers. 
And you know that, and that's on the assumption that there's bona fide companies involved with all the parts of it. You could have uh, just an independent writer who you know is sitting in their apartment in Manhattan who issues a license on behalf of everybody else, and that person's going to account to everybody. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, so it's really unworkable. But I think again, it points back to it's up to the industry to get our shit together and and get out in front of all this and and make it happen. And you know we forget that the current structure that we live with. Was, is very much a, way, a result of these kind of discussions in previous generations or eras. I mean, even the collective licensing of a PRO, you know, the idea of a blanket license to radio, was a response to, you know, a similar situation where when thousands of radio stations popped up and you've got tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of creators or rights owners trying to license thousands of radio stations, it was impossible to do that point to point. So the uh, the rights owners pooled all their rights and issued blanket licenses to the stations, and the stations. You know, get a one annual, or well, in this country, two, three, five now, I guess. Uh, but never mind. <laughs> That's a whole other panel. It's kind of going the wrong way. <laughs> so, for those of you that are on the side of licensing to other people, or have been in the past, what are, what are the main things that you wish people coming to you for a license had known or were familiar with before they came and talked to you? That they needed to talk to us. <laughs> so that's, that's the most important thing. You know, I mean, actually, we're going through some situation right now in, um, with um, uh, music supervisor community um, in Canada, which is very, they take their, a lot of their business operational cues from the US, and we have an exclusive uh, um, uh, performing, license, performing right assignment in Canada. And so these music supervisors will work to, uh, for a website to clear music for their website, and they say, here you go, it's all cleared, and the website launches without obtaining a, a blanket license from SOCAN, and so they're, they're infringing from day one, and yet they're told by experts that you, know, that, that, that you got everything you need. So it, it, it all goes back to what we said earlier, you've got to do your research, uh, and you've got to come to the people with, uh, with the rights having done the research. I mean, it's like anything else. If you want to renovate your house, you, you know, you, there's an awful, awful lot of details. There's, there's building codes and permits and all kinds of things you have to get. And, and, you, and you, don't, you, don't, you don't want to learn that industry just to renovate your house. You've got to find people who know the industry. On the sound recorder or master side, I think, um, especially from somebody who represents independence, um, I, I would hope that everybody who's entering the music space and needs a license on the, on the master side would know that um, whether it's in the U.S. or globally, uh, the independent market share um, is about a third of the business. Um, and that if you're ever in front of an audience of independent rights owners, please avoid using long tail and baby <laughs> bands um, because I'm often the person who's organized an event like that and I'll be standing in the back of the room and the presenter starts in on, we love indies, we, we love those baby bands and stuff. And I'm like, over there is the owner of the label who puts out Diplo, and over there is the owner of the label who puts out Radiohead, and there's the guy from the, you know, the label that's putting out Wu-Tang Clan. And, and so it's like, you know, there's plenty of really large hits that come from the independent sector, and you really don't help yourself by talking about how much you love indies and then kind of disrespecting what they put out in the marketplace. All right. So we've, we've got a few minutes left. I want to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, does anybody have one? Have we answered everything that could possibly be known about licensing? Why are we all here? Uh, all right. Stephen. 
Michael, you say it's time for the industry to get its shit together. How exactly do you see that happening? <laughs> it's a coup by Michael. <laughs> SoCan's taking over the world, in case you haven't noticed. No, I think, um, I think I, I, it's obviously the top-down global uh, um, uh, collaboration uh, approach, especially to building an authoritative database, has been tried and failed. Uh, I think the answer then is individual regional parties getting together and taking care of their own backyard. And um, if you can clean up your own backyard, then maybe other people will clean up their backyard using a similar method. And then you can combine the cleaned up backyards, uh, either combine them literally or the licensors then they'll have to deal with a s small number of cleaned up backyards. That's the way I see it. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I hope not. Um, and and I, I don't wish it, but the more a threat of legislation, the faster people will move, I think. All right, Larry, got a question. Uh, for earlier stage companies, uh, to what extent do you see the need for minimum guarantees? And where, where do you see that trending? And then also, what is the length of partnership you think a company can expect uh, to get if they're trying to have you know, visibility into a longer term operating model? I mean, I can speak from my own experience. I mean, it, I, think, I think we're seeing a lot more flexibility from. Um, the labels and publishers around things like MRGs. Uh, I think it really depends on your business model and what you're bringing to the table in terms of the monetization opportunity for them. But I think there are opportunities to obtain licenses without minimum guarantees. Um, and then in terms of term, you know, typically for, I think, early stage companies, those terms tend to be short. Uh, you tend to get one or two year deals at the most. Yeah, that's... Um totally agree with that and I think the closer the business model is to something that folks have seen before you might be able to get out of some of those MGs but it's it's sort of the way that rights owners can get some you know guarantee it's right there in the, the word um, so um, I think it just depends on, on what the business model is and, and I've agree. I mean, it's usually one or two year terms of what I've seen. I was just going to say it's interesting because I was thinking that the closer you are to an existing you know, significant revenue model, the more likely it is that I'm going to want a large um, guarantee. Um, you know, if, if, if this company is paying me, you know, millions per month, why do I want to let you in unless you can guarantee that you're going to get close to that? Yeah, I can see that. I mean, because you have something to benchmark against, but... Particularly if there's a different rate. And the other thing, uh, Jim, earlier you were, you were talking about sort of the the logic from a label perspective in having an advance or those types of... Guaranteed. Yeah, I mean, it's a little unpopular, but it's, it's just it's straight capitalism. I mean, if you need my product to launch your business, then the business risk is really yours, right? Um, you know, and you don't want to... And what the music industry has done until Ted Cohen stopped it is uh, we were abusive with that, um, <laughs> that power. And we can get shown that, the, you know, if, you, if you're unjust with the power that you wield, then something else will come around and, and beat you back. But... But yeah, you know, straight capitalism. I, I don't blame um, you know somebody for asking for a large guarantee or a large advance. You're trying to launch your business off of it. It's kind of like uh, season one and two of Game of Thrones, maybe. <laughs> Who's gonna die next? Uh, any other? Uh, there's another question there. Um, what is your stance on the viability of a starter license for you know particularly relevant to this? this group of people for, for startups in terms of 
sort of fast tracking, you know, an early license that sort of gets a limited subset or something that does take some of the pain out of out of the licensing process to sort of fuel innovation because there's a lot of startups that, that would benefit from that. And I think, you know, I know there's been some talk of it. There's actually some attempt at it, but I'd just like to hear, you know, your position on that. Yeah, well, our organization does have that pre-clear library, that sandbox um, to work from. And also, if there's a wish list of particular tracks that you wish to use, a lot of times we do data matches to identify the content owners, and then we would solicit just those particular content owners for the tracks that you want to use or the compositions you want to use. Um, so we, you know, kind of have a walled garden of the type of content that we'd help you clear 100%. So that is a popular model. I think publishers do appreciate that. If you go to them and say, I want a catalog level deal, um, for a business model that perhaps hasn't been proven yet. Um, you might not have as much success um, if you were to go with a you know, particular track list that you'd like to use. We did also talk a little bit uh, before the panel about Universal's announcement yesterday about their new incubator program. That's what, that's what Ted just reminded me of, which, too. Which uh, you know, is, a, is, a, is a program to try to incubate startups that aren't really ready for that full commercial license yet but still want access to library and they've partnered with a few of the, the music incubators around the world uh, to be part of that. So that's a good program run by Tuheen Roy over at Universal. So, Lauren, if you talk about like a catalog level license, from a logistics point of view, is that easier or harder or no different for, uh, for you to manage? Uh, if somebody says, I want like all songs in this genre or I want all songs by this artist or some subset of, of, of artists, it doesn't necessarily map directly to a publishing catalog or even a, a label on the master side. Uh, is that manageable or is that a huge pain in the ass as well? Yeah, which is all about data mapping and having those links between the sound recordings and the compositions. So we have about 40 million links already made between the compositions and the sound recordings, and that really facilitates. So no matter if you're speaking the you know, sound recording language or composition language, we can identify it. All right. So it's easy to just go and pick all of them. There's a question in the back. How soon is uh, China going to open up with um, distribution? Well, it, it already is. I don't know what it, you mean. It's a pretty big market already, and you know, groups like Tencent and others have pretty massive licensing deals and are distributing tremendous amounts of content. All the major labels have done licensing deals to administrators in China already. I don't know if Merlin's got a similar uh, process underway. What's up with the Merlin deal <laughs> on that? <laughs> so a lot of... Um, uh, <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the licenses um, that have been done in in China are um, tied to exclusivity for a service. The services themselves often aren't music services, but they act more like distributors. So they will license content um, with a figurative gun at the licensor's head because the music's already performing over there. Um, and they get the right to then distribute your music to other services. So it would be sort of like if Spotify licensed content and had the right in that license to distribute it to Apple. Um, they're often also buyouts, which means there's no accounting and reporting. And so to the people who've already licensed those places, 
I don't know that that that's you know so making it all the way down to the to the artist level. So. We know it's hard, but <laughs> so I mean, it's all listen. It's all coming um, now. The thing is, is with uh, you know a, a nation like China, the the government can change uh, you know change the direction of the marketplace in a whim. So I would say that that Merlin um, is talking to people in China uh, and we're optimistic that, like you said, it's coming. But I think his question is actually very legitimate. because well, you, you raise one of the big problems with, with China, and whenever I talk to people about it, it always gets repeated back to me from everyone, is the issue of lack of reporting. And it's one thing to do a license on a flat rate buyout deal, but it's completely different if that buyout isn't accompanied by usage reporting, because then as a label, as a publisher, as somebody else, you have no way of knowing how to divide that revenue up among your artists or your writers. So you either have to use some sort of a proxy, which is never going to be accurate from other countries, do it based on market share, or, or who knows what, invent something that seems logical, but it's still never going to be accurate. And there is a, a, a big issue with uh, companies in China of not being willing to provide that. Reporting, and then earlier I talked about the, the the other issues, the more operational issues, and and so some folks who have licensed China or a service in China then say, okay, so how about my DDEX feed? And they're like, just send an Excel spreadsheet of your metadata. You know, right? <laughs> <laughs> like the, we don't need the content; we already have it. Yeah. So there's. <laughs> All right, we have probably time for one last question. If somebody has it. There's. Over there in the green. There's a mic on its way. Thank you. So I have a startup that's dealing with this fun question now. And it, it struck me as odd that I had to, because I was uh, ignorant, that I had to clear two separate copyrights in each piece of content. Could you ever see a future where that's not the case, where a startup has to either clear the master right? No, and that's why I misspoke earlier when I, because I, you guys were talking about the 100% license of publishing, and I jumped in and said, well, there's the master and, and uh, songwriter overlay, but no, because you ask a songwriter if he's going to cede to the record label, the performer, the right to license his publishing, and probably not going to happen. Or vice versa. Or vice versa. Yeah, it's, because it's inherently different people for the most part, if I write a song and you record it, it there's always going to be a division between the publishing side and uh, the label side and, and different rights holders there. So I, I doubt that either one would want to, as Jim says, cede control to the other. Uh, what's your startup and what is it doing? Oh, it's called Weave Music. I get to do a demo at 2.30. We make adaptive versions of the awesome hits that come out of uh, this fantastic industry, and it's just—it's just a it's definitely a lot of licensing needed. That's what I found, yes. And thank you, by the way, to Rumble Fix for helping us with with that. But it just—it just seems like, well, to my naive and maybe somewhat self-serving need that things would move a lot quicker if we could find a way to make there just be one copyright per content. Well, one of the other issues that historically came up is with. Uh, with record sales, labels would collect and then pay the publishers on behalf of them, and then there were a whole lot of a whole lot of issues there with payment not being properly accounted, not knowing who the rights holders were, and these giant black boxes of uh, of ownership or 
royalties for publishers that labels had collected and hadn't been either willing or able to pay out depending on who you ask. Uh, so that kind of sets a bit of the history of why people wouldn't do that. Uh, and that was just for mechanical. Whitney, do you have a... Sorry. It was just for, and that was just for one subset of rights, like mechanical reproduction. There were uh, problems with labels, the way labels accounted to publishers, but it created an, a, a very vibrant retail space with record stores all over the place and little mom-and-pop stores all over the place that had no relationship whatsoever with publishers. It's a very unique issue to the United States. Now, there are licensing and publishing, is, uh, publishing accounting issues globally. I just came from Brazil where... The big talk down there amongst the publishers was that there was just really no one empowered to negotiate the right across all publishers. Um, and so it's, it, there's problems everywhere. But in the United States specifically, um, the statutory mechanical publishing royalty for streaming, which was set after a lot of you know, testimony in front of the government and, and, the, and the board, the, the, the CRB, um, made it so that in a de facto sense, if all streaming services today said, you, you labels, we're going to pay you everything and you account out to the artists, don't make it our problem anymore, we couldn't because it's all based on a percentage of the service's overall revenue, um, which we wouldn't have. And then there's a calculable in there because even inside the, the one right, the, the publishing right, there's a split there between the mechanical and the performance side of it. And so some, it's 10.5% is the stat rate right here. Here's the master guy talking about publishing. I should shut up. But, but uh, you know, like, the, like we wouldn't, labels wouldn't be able to calculate and pay that out. All right. Well, on that scary note, uh, it's time to wrap up. So thank you to all the panelists. Uh, everybody go grab some lunch. <laughs>